Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast from Grace Anglican Church of Grove City, Pennsylvania. Our goal in every sermon is to proclaim the bold truth of the Word of God, especially the undiluted grace of Jesus Christ. If you want to learn more about our church, check out our website at graceanglicanonline.com. Some of you are old enough or historically aware enough to remember Nelson Mandela. I hope you do. Uh, he was a, a black politician who opposed apartheid in South Africa. And apartheid was that division, a, a really a full-scale division between uh, blacks and whites uh, within that particular nation. He was imprisoned in 1962 for attempting to overthrow the apartheid government. Sentenced for life, didn't end up serving a life term, served 27 years, he was eventually, for a variety of reasons, released. Then he became president. And then he oversaw the death of apartheid within that country. And he wrote about his experience in prison. This is what he wrote. It was during those long and lonely years in prison that my hunger for the freedom of my own people became a hunger for the freedom of all people, white and black. I knew that the oppressor must be liberated just as surely as the oppressed. A man who takes away another man's freedom is a prisoner of hatred. I am not truly free if I am taking away someone else's freedom, just as surely as I am not free when my freedom is taken away from me. The oppressed and the oppressor alike are robbed of their humanity." It's a really beautiful thing to say after you've been rotting away in a jail cell for 27 years. Well, how did Mandela survive in a cage of concrete, in a concrete context? Well, it's because his life was founded on a conviction. His life was founded on a conviction. And that uh, conviction was simply this, that hatred has to perish on all sides. In order for people to be desperately helped in the deepest possible way, hatred needs to perish on all sides. Well, this really is connected very seriously to our passage from Ephesians, because you may know, given our text today, that Ephesians, the letter to the church in Ephesus, was written by an inmate. Uh, it was written by uh, Saul of Tarsus, whom we know as Paul, uh, who was in jail at the time that he wrote this letter. And like Mandela, Paul's convictions uh, could not be contained in a prison cell. And in fact, kept him sane in a prison cell. So in Ephesians 3, Paul becomes unusually autobiographical. Now, we think in our day and age that it's quite common and even necessary to speak constantly of one's own life and one's own experience. Uh, not everybody thought that way all the time. Uh, and in Paul's generation, it was very rare that people would speak, especially in epistolary literature, that is, epistles, letters, about their own private experience. But Paul, in this particular passage, becomes very autobiographical and reminds us both of his context as well as his convictions. So I want to speak about his context as well as convictions today. Now, whenever we think about the theme of context, it's probably appropriate to consider our own passage's context, 
Uh, so chapter 3, unsurprisingly, comes right after chapter 2. And in chapter 2, uh, Paul describes the widening uh, family of God. Uh, because he believes that because of the advent of Jesus Christ and the unique accomplishment of the bloodletting Christ and the risen Christ, we have now a new understanding of what it means to be a person of God or part of the people of God, which is now not only the 1%, that is the Jews, leaving out the 99%, the Gentiles, instead it's one new man, says St. Paul, a combination of all races and tribes and languages and interests. We're all gathered together on the, under the same blood-stained banner. And that's our context. And so Paul is then um, building on that context by discussing his own personal context, his own personal context. And so the passage, our text, begins and ends with his personal context, which, by the way, is quite rough. He's in a rough place. He's in a bad way. And he's trying to communicate that, yes, with grace, but communicate it to his audience. So I want you to read with me verse 1 and then skip down to verse 13 because our passage again begins and ends with his rough context. Verse 1. For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you, dot, 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 ellipsis, verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Now, what does he want them to know? He wants them to know that he's not writing to them from the Hilton. Now, you've been to the Hilton, and they provide you with a ballpoint pen and nice stationery that nobody ever uses. Um, but, but if he wanted to, he could have written a letter from a nice hotel, but he wasn't in a nice hotel. He was in a prison cell. Uh, he was in a place that had iron bars and an iron door that had a big lock on it. He was in a very, very small room, probably eight by eight, you know, he slept on the floor on straw, he went to the bathroom in a bucket, and he ate bread, and that's it. That was his life. Uh, <clears throat> and you may know this, that Paul was not only in prison, he was in a Roman prison. And a Roman prison is the opposite of whatever a Hilton tries to be. Uh, and, and not just that, he was in the pagan capital of the world, right? He was, he was in the epicenter of the archetypal enemy for most Jews. So there he is, rotting away in a Roman prison, Remember, please, that uh, Paul was in prison three different times within his life. His total uh, jail sentences uh, would be estimated at about five to five and a half years. So that's longer than your time in college. He was in a prison cell. He, he knows a lot about suffering, and he knows a lot about withdrawal from society, and he knows a lot about personal anguish and pain. He knows a lot about what it means to not understand what's happening in the outside world because he can only see, you know, 200 yards outside his window. And you might assume, given his difficult experience and his terrible context, that he would feel defeated. Now, wouldn't you? I mean, if you were not only jailed, but jailed repeatedly, and not only jailed repeatedly, but jailed repeatedly in an unjust manner, what would that do to you psychologically? I mean, some of you have spent the night in jail, and I know because I get phone calls. But um, and so you know a little bit. I mean, you know a little bit because of you know you got a little wasted, but uh, um, and you were a little dangerous. Uh, but uh, but uh, you don't know what it is. Most of you, probably none of you, know what it is to spend years of your life within a jail cell. And what would that do to your self-image? What would that do to your stamina? What would that do uh, uh, to your sense of calling or vocation? To your job? To your family? Uh, so we might assume that Paul would feel defeated because of his context, but no. What did Paul do? He converted guards, and he wrote things. Here's what he wrote from prison. Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, all of those letters written from a jail cell. 
<clears throat> and more than that, Paul learned something very deep. He learned that his own weaknesses, limitations, and constraints do not weaken, limit, or constrain God. He learned that weakness was not his enemy, but that in his own personal weakness, he was able to see with piercing clarity that God was fiercely strong and that his weakness would not stop the strength of God. He began to understand this to the degree that he wrote about it, uh, actually in the Corinthian correspondence, but um, he learned that God seems to revel within difficult contexts. And that's what I want to uh, say to you uh, today, really. My message to you is this, that context doesn't matter very much. Uh, context is what it is. I'm not saying it, it, it isn't important in certain ways, but uh, the eternal is never threatened by the temporal constraints of context. Because your context, of course, is formative and important, but God is more formative and more important. Um, and, and God seems to revel within context that we deem to be impossible. That's his nature. After all, he is the God of the ex nihilo creation, right? That God makes something out of nothing. That's what ex nihilo means. That God speaks, and out of the bleakness and emptiness of the universe, something begins to happen. And that's why it says in the New Testament that God calls the things that are not to become the things that are. And when it comes to your own saved soul, your own saved nature, that wasn't something that God did because he saw a spark or a flame within you and threw gasoline on it. Instead, what did he see? He saw somebody who was stuck completely, 100%, in the bounds of nature's night and said, I'm going to save you. Uh, and so he creates something out of nothing. And he takes an impossible prison context and changes the world in the midst of it. Now, uh, this is uh, very uh, clear in biblical history that God is the God of an ex nihilo who takes the ridiculous context of the human condition and makes something beautiful out, it, out of it. Consider Sarah's context in the Old Testament. Sarah's context. She was aged and she was barren. And yet, because of God, she gave birth to a son who formed an empire. Joseph's context was a dark, dank dungeon. And yet he became, because of God, the vice regent of Egypt. Moses' context was the Egyptian tyranny. But because of God, he was able to free the Hebrew people. Ruth's context was pagan poverty. But she became the great-great-grandmother of King David. David's context, he was a pansy shepherd. And yet he became the king of Israel. Isaiah's context was national apostasy. And yet he gave his country a conscience. Daniel's context was a basement filled with lions, and yet he was unharmed by a death sentence. Esther's context was exile, and yet she saved a whole country. Jesus's context was a poor family from the wrong town, and he faced the colossal tides of bad religion and bad politics. And yet, because of God, he redeemed the world. So God is not thwarted, threatened, constrained, or humbled by contexts. And so let me just speak to you about your context, because, you know, it's really important for me and all preachers to realize uh, that we don't just speak to people up here or Christians in general. I don't speak to you. I try not to in vague terms like we're all broken. We're all struggling because that is white noise and it means nothing uh, because your situation is more particular than just bland brokenness. 
Um, your situation, your context is very, very specific, and the specifics, again, are important, because maybe today you are the daughter of a sort of Jerry Springer-like family whose father abandoned you and your mother and your siblings very early on, uh, and which has led to an enormous distrust, an understandable distrust of men and of marriage as well, uh, and it's created, truth be told, a very secret but very pronounced eating disorder within you. And nobody knows about it, and you're terribly ashamed about it, and you're so ashamed that, you'll, that you right now are not in the mind or frame of mind to seek help. But your situation is that specific. Or maybe you are a, a grown man who is very highly functioning, and you've become sort of the model citizen for all other men, and they look to you, and they see credibility and endurance and stamina, and they all secretly want to be you and resent you for being you. Uh, but you are highly functioning, and yet at the same time that you're making bank and you have a significant degree, you are enormously stressed and off the charts depressed, and you know you can't admit that because you can't show a crack in your armor, God knows, or what would happen to you, and then people would see the real you and totally freak out, and then, you know, actually none of those things would happen. They would find you more human and, and uh, interesting and uh, palatable, <laughs> truly. Um, but you're depressed, and so you're, you're drinking a lot, actually night after night. You, you, you give it up on Sundays out of guilt, but you drink a lot. Um, that's your situation. Or maybe you're a, a teenager, a teenager who has never felt understood, either at home or at school or even here this morning, not by your preacher. You feel like your world is totally torn apart week after week by all the expectations of your peers and your parents and religion and the man, whatever that is, and you feel completely lost in life and you don't know where you're going. You're supposed to have a plan because everybody else seems to have a plan, but you don't have a plan. You don't know where you're going to college. You don't even care. Truth be told, you might want to get a face tattoo and maybe that's the right idea. But that's where you are today. But everybody has a context. Everybody's coming to a context. I'm speaking this morning to 10,000 different contexts, not because there are 10,000 people here, but because you bring with you endless amounts of contextual bits of formation that have created you into the person that you currently are. And so you are hearing me today as a Reformed Baptist, and so you're very suspicious of me wearing all this fabulous regalia. Um, or you're a Roman Catholic, and you're, and you're wondering why I don't wear more regalia. You know? But everybody is coming from a context. Um, but here is, um, here's the, the thing. Our context is powerful, but we make a very grave mistake when we believe that context in light of God is definitive, because it is not your context is not definitive, and Paul knew that. Paul knew that. But you maybe you're inheriting today a situation that you feel like is a jail. It's a jail in which you're going to die. You have this context that you can't be freed from. But Paul knew his biblical history, and he knew that the Holy Spirit flows through iron bars, that nothing obstructs the work of God. And God accomplishes his purposes regardless of our context. And so God is going to overcome your context. That's the first gospel word to you today, that God is going to overcome your context and even utilize your context because God is a great opportunist. He'll use anything, anything. And that's why Paul can say to these Gentiles in Ephesus, in Turkey, that all of this has happened for your glory. My imprisonment is for your glory because this pain that I'm experiencing right now is going to somehow encourage you to the nth degree. Where did he get this idea from, this substitutionary idea that his pain could be for somebody else's relief? Well, that goes right back to his own mentor, right? That's Jesus Christ, whose pain brings endless relief to people. So that's the first word about context, his imprisoned context. Now moving on to conviction. Conviction, and that's the second word of the sermon, conviction. Because Paul's mission, 
was not going to be halted by jail or by anything else because he was energized by a dynamic conviction. And what was that conviction? What was Paul's animating conviction? Well, he was called by God. This sounds a little obscure, but it's not. Stick with me. He was called by God to unveil a mystery, a mystery. The text uses that strange word four times, four times, a mystery. I'll read them unto you. This is verse three. Please check it out. Verse three. How the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. Now, he's talking about a revelation that was given to him directly by Jesus. It's found in Acts chapter 9, if you're interested, in which the risen Jesus appears to Saul, the jihadist persecutor of the early Christian tribe. Uh, Jesus opens his spiritual eyes to understand that his life has been woefully misdirected and that he is going to be, in the future, a proclaimer of the gospel, not to the sort of sacred, conclavist Jewish community, But instead, he's going to be the proclaimer of the gospel to the Gentile pagan world. The people that believed in child sacrifice and magic and blood cults and astrology. He was going to be the emissary to those people. That's what happened. And he received that that mystery through revelation. That's verse 3. Now verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So what is Paul saying? The mystery that I received to unveil, I'm now unveiling it to you. This isn't something, some private bit of spirituality for my own well-being. This revelation was given to me so that I could give it to you. Then verse 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And then verse 9. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So Paul's conviction is that God had this great design that was obscured for many, many years, many generations. And nobody really knew what the plan was. But then because of the risen Jesus' appearance to Saul on the way to Damascus, that mystery that was hidden for generations and generations and obscured and couldn't be seen is now visible, plain as day, and can be seen. His goal, Paul's conviction, was that he was born to make known something. Text says that twice, make known something, or bring something to light that was once a mystery. In other words, he was there to take the veil away from the very thing that everybody needed to see. Paul does not exist to make mysteries. He, was, he is there to clarify what was once mysterious. Uh, it was funny. I was watching this YouTube video that made me clinically depressed the other day. Uh, and it was with, it's, it's, it was this, uh, it, like there's a series and this very um, uh, bald-headed, uh, strong-looking dude. I, I say that because I want to be that person. Um, a bald-headed, strong-looking dude who goes to different churches. And the, the caption was an evangelical goes to an Anglican church, and it was fine. But then the Anglican vicar gets up there, and he's like, well, tell me, like, what, is the, what are the sacraments? And the Anglican vicar says, well, they're just mysteries. They're just mysteries. We don't really know. It's a mystery. I'm like, wrong. That is not what we believe at all. That is not what we believe. The sacraments in Christianity, we are not a mystery cult. We are not here doing, like, mystical spiritual things that you need a secret password to understand. 
No, Paul constantly, this is his refrain, what we are what we are in Christ is plain to you. I've come to make known what was mysterious. I've come to unveil something so that you see clarity. We are not here to give you a mystification, but clarification. We're not here to like show up smoke screens and put on magic shows. We're here to bring something of crystal clarity to you. The sacraments are designed, baptism and communion are designed to clarify your understanding of God, not make it more mysterious and smoky. We're here to say something clear to you, which is that God has made himself known in the flesh and blood of his only begotten son who came here to love you in the midst of your own pathological hellscape and save you from it through his death and resurrection. The sacraments clarify that for us. They don't add more mystery. They bring clarity. And that's what the apostle Paul is here to do and to say. And what is this mystery that he is making known in verse six? It says, the mystery is that... If he's trying to be mystifying, he's failing. The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and members of the same body. What is the mystery that was hidden for ages that Abraham wouldn't have really fully understood that Isaiah only saw little glimpses of but couldn't really understand that God will expand his family in a way that nobody could foresee that God was really the whole time an architect of an expansive election that included Jews and Gentiles, the 1% and the 99%, the sick and the well, the conservative and the liberal. In other words, he wanted a world without this religious apartheid. And Paul was animated by this conviction. That's why he traveled the Gentile world more than the current emperor. It's why he wrote letters that have had within them an eternal weight. It's why we still read them and call them the word of the Lord. It motivated him because he wanted us all to be together. He didn't want these distinctions anymore. He wanted one new man in Christ. And he knew that conviction trumps context. Conviction trumps context. When it comes from God, conviction is more powerful than your context. By the way, that's the only reason the gospel is working here this morning. It's the only reason. Because again, I'm speaking to 10,000 different contexts. What binds us together? Because we're so different. Don Shepson has great hair. I never will. <laughs> Unless I buy a wig. I've told you this before, but when Cora was five, she said, you could get a wig, you know. And it could have a chin strap so that it wouldn't come off in the wind. Yeah. She's so thoughtful and charitable. I love my family. So um, they don't make me feel bad about myself. So, But what, what binds um, Dr. Shepson to me? We love each other. And he has great hair and I don't. But the thing that causes us to love each other and the thing that causes me to love you and hopefully you to love me is this conviction, this conviction that we're all devastated. Everybody in this room is more hurt than you could possibly imagine and more sinful than you think. And Christ has overcome it all in his death and resurrection. That conviction meets us and organizes us and unifies us regardless of our context. And so Paul learned in the midst of a prison that no harsh context, no iron bars can snuff out that conviction about Christ. There's this beautiful scene, by the way, in uh, A Christmas Carol in which the ghost of Christmas past was this candle-looking incandescent ghost who carried um, with them like a, a candle snuffer and there was a strange moment in the story where Scrooge was overcome with grief and rage 
because of what the ghost of Christmas past showed him about his own personal and devastated history. And Scrooge takes the candle snuffer in his hands and violently starts to jam it down on the head of the ghost of Christmas past. And this is what Dickens writes in the novel. Scrooge pressed it down with all his force, but he could not hide the light, which streamed forth in an unbroken flood upon the ground. And a voice called out from the light to Scrooge, but truth lives, truth lives. The context cannot change the conviction. The conviction trumps the context. So these are my two concluding words for you today, and then I'm done. Let me say something about the context for each of us. Because each of us resides in a, like a labyrinth landscape, and the walls are always changing. Have you ever seen David Bowie's movie, Labyrinth? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Thank God for you. Okay. Um, but it's all about a labyrinth in which the walls are constantly changing and everybody's lost. And so what do we do as Christians within an ever-changing landscape and a reactive landscape? What do we do? Well, we could like try endless, endless adaptation and conform ourselves to these ever-changing contexts and sort of beg for people to accept us. Like you could spend your whole life doing that. I think that's the great fault of um, not just mainline churches, but I'll speak to them because I was part of one, the mainline church. You know, I was I was an Episcopalian for a long time, and that's known right now as a very liberal church, like theologically speaking, not politically speaking, which I don't care about. But what I learned in, in, in my time in that tradition is that we changed our minds about everything so that people would like us. Like, you'll come to church, right, if we totally just become the Huffington Post? Please? But you've been to churches that, you know, if you're just the New York Post, you know, that's good. But you'll just morph so that people like you and find you palatable. And see, Jesus is okay, too, because he agrees with you constantly, as long as we edit, like, a third of the stuff he says, Right? If we do that, if we constantly keep changing the line just to be on the right side of history, which also changes depending on who's defining the terms, and then we will be as stable as water. Or to quote the play Charles III, we will be a pretty plastic picture that has no meaning. Instead, we are to conform. We are to be conformists, but we are to conform to the conviction of the gospel, which is steadier and better for you. So that's something about context, now conviction. We are to be people of conviction, not ultimately about a theory or economics or philosophy or environmentalism or voter ID laws or whether or not you're superior to your brother or sister. Those things are important. They're worth our consideration. I'm not minimizing them, maybe except with the competition among siblings. But the other things are important. But we only have one conviction, friends, that is totally non-contextual. One conviction that is non-contextual, and it was Paul's conviction that Christ came for people regardless of their context, whether they were Jew or Greek, black or Latino, joyful or depressed. This is our animating, sustaining conviction, and it is bright as the evening star. And I want you to hear me, especially at this point. Jesus sprints toward sinners. Jesus comes toward each of you for pretenders and for falsifiers, and for impossible to please Enneagram number ones. They're known as the reformers. For junkies, for moral stragglers who can't walk in sobriety, for hippies who veer off course, for fear-mongering twitches, for rageaholic women, for cowardly men, for body starvers, 
for dads who had kids out of wedlock and for all those people who judge dads for having kids out of wedlock, for IRS agents, for Antifa members, and for those who host alt-right rallies, for Nelson Mandela and for everybody who imprisoned Nelson Mandela, for every person you've ever loved and for every person you've ever hated, for those of us who are completely convinced when all is said and done that our lives are a grave disappointment to God. So I have a grandmother who is nearing 90. He used to sing my brother and I a lullaby before we went to bed. It was a pietist hymn. And it's a hymn that is about transcending contexts. And this is a song, like this is a song you can sing in the dark. Uh, And I'm not going to sing it to you, but I'll close with the lines. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty. But the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that is my portion may be flame or may be flood, but his presence goes before me, and I'm always covered by his blood. Amen.